there, my name is Kathleen, and this is The Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is about the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and features three special guests, Kristen Anderson, Angela Offmuth, and Carmen Glasgow. NICMIC is the nation's largest and most influential child protection organization. An average of 2,300 children are reported missing every day. The center has assisted law enforcement in the recovery of over 376,000 missing children. And they also operate the Cyber Tip Line, which is a national-level mechanism for reporting suspected child sexual exploitation. In 2021, the Cyber Tip Line received over 29 million reports. On the show, we hear from Kristen Anderson, who has now left NICMIC but went on to become the Executive Director of Training and Outreach and developed and implemented NICMIC's first online training platform and curriculum. And we will also hear from Angela Offmuth, who is currently the Executive Director of Analytical Programs in the Analytical Services Division. She's responsible for the oversight of the Missing Child and Data Analytics Team and the Sex Offender Tracking Team. And the episode also features Carmen Glasgow, who at the time uh, was the supervisor of the Case Analysis Unit. In this episode, we will hear about NICMIC's inception and learn how the analysts work to help find the missing children and how they work to address child abductions and various forms of exploitation, such as trafficking in children. Due to the nature of the topic for today's episode, some listeners may find the content to be heavy. Although no explicit details are discussed, listener discretion is advised. Now let's get into today's episode. Today's topic is analysis at the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Our guests are Kristen Anderson, she's the director of the Case Analysis Division, Angela Offmoth, supervisor of the Sex Offender Tracking Team, and Carmen Glasgow, the supervisor of the Case Analysis Unit. It's really a pleasure to have these um, women analysts from the National Center of for Missing and Exploited Children as our guests because I myself don't know much about analysis at the center and this is obviously very important work. So hello Kristen, Angela, and Carmen. Welcome to the show. Thank Hi. You. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, so Kristen, um, you could probably tell us a little bit more about um, the work you are doing in your team, what types of analysis are being done at the center. Give us a little overview. Sure. Um, in the division that we're in here, the case analysis division, we're kind of the data center for the organization, and we have three different units in this division. One is our case analysis unit, uh, which those are a team of analysts who support case managers and law enforcement officers working missing child cases, and Carmen will go into a little bit more detail about that. Um, we have our background checks unit, which those are a team of analysts who uh, provide a service to the public in terms of running uh, fingerprint-based national uh, criminal history checks for individuals who are applying to work with youth-serving organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs of America, um, so folks that are attempting to get a gain access to children and in that manner that we run criminal history checks on those folks um, if the club chooses to work with us. Uh, we also have our special analysis unit, which actually consists of three different teams. We have our research team. Uh, there's two analysts there. They do a number of different things. Um, there's a lot of ad hoc work. We have media requests or requests for data within the center. They produce the monthly activity report for the center, which um, includes 
multiple fields having to do with missing children data, both domestic and international, and uh, tracks the different types of uh, activities that are going on in the missing children arena. And then they also respond to a lot of internal requests for data, um, both for media, for uh, presentations, um, and other purposes to track uh, workload here at the center. And then we have our attempted abductions team, which is two analysts who track attempted abductions across the United States, which uh, in terms of prevention and investigative strategies, we really feel like uh, this is an area if we can study the failures of abductors, how much could we really learn about their patterns and the, the types of lures and ruses that they use, types of methods that they're using to try to gain access to children. So we track those and we, we put out a, a weekly report of, of those cases, uh, whatever we can find. And then we have a sex offender tracking team, which Angela is going to talk about a little bit more in depth. And uh, those are a team of analysts. We have six full-time analysts there who support the United States Marshals and other local and state law enforcement tracking down fugitive sex offenders. And how many analysts do you have at, at your center altogether? We have about 28 in the case analysis division, and then um, there's another analytical division here that works with uh, more online-based crimes uh, against children, and that's our exploited child division. And I think there's about 40 analysts in that division now. I'm not exactly sure of the numbers. They've been growing pretty fast, but somewhere in that arena. Okay, and um, you're located in Alexandria, Virginia? Yes, we're about 10 minutes from D.C. Okay, great. Um, and so... Um, who would like to go next to provide their overview of the work they're doing? I'll actually hand it over to Carmen to talk about the case analysis unit, what her team does. Okay, great. Thanks, Kristen. Hi, Debbie. Yeah. Um, the case analysis unit um, is... Wait a second. We're getting a little bit of an echo here. Um, it might be just proximity to other phones or something. Uh-oh. Does that help if we move? Let's try it. <laughs> okay. Um, the case analysis unit here at the center, um, as Christian mentioned, works with our case managers in the missing children's division. And we, right now we have about six analysts who work full-time on missing children co child cases. Um, I have another analyst who specializes in NCIC and another analyst who works on child prostitution cases. Um, the National Center was... <laughs> It's the center's responsibility to serve as the National Clearinghouse on information on missing child issues. And um, all the leads that come into the center, through our, we have a 24-hour call center, all the leads that come in, our unit is responsible for facilitating the redistribution of those leads to the appropriate state clearinghouses and also to the law enforcement agencies who have interest in the investigative interest in our leads. So that's one of our primary functions. Um, well, how, do you, how do you determine what leads go where, I mean, it seems like a complicated task to me as someone who doesn't know how you do that. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. It may, may be a little bit, bit easier to understand. Um, let's say, for instance, that we have a call from someone um, who was recently at a Walmart, and well, I'm just using Walmart as an example, and they see a situation that doesn't look right to them. They see, you know, an adult a female pulling a, a child by the arm out of the store, and they think it doesn't look right. They're concerned that this isn't... Um, a child that belongs with that adult, and they go and get in a car. And let's say this, this incident happens in Virginia, for example, but the car that she gets into has a West Virginia tag. 
we know that, okay, so we've got, we have two possible states that may have an interest. So when we take that lead, we're going to send it to the clearinghouse in West Virginia and to Virginia because um, they both might have an investigative interest. Does that? Yes, yes, that sounds, that makes sense to me. Sure. Um, and a lot of times the leads that come in, um, we're not able to readily identify um, the child. We have a lot of folks who call in and they don't actually know the name of a child, so we're not able to say, um, absolutely that this this child is one of our missing child children, um, but we do our best in our unit to try and associate any possible leads to any of our open cases. So if we have a child that comes up in a lead that has the same physical description as one of our missing children, then we're going to notify the case manager who's working on that and then also the law enforcement agency who's investigating that particular case. And um, so as far as the missing child, Data, what kind of data do you have to to compare to find out if it matches a missing child you know about? Like, what are you are you looking at multiple databases, or do you have one database that has all the missing child information in it? Uh, a little bit of both. We do have a very large uh, missing child database here at the center, and we've um, with literally thousands of different cases open and closed. And um, what we're doing is looking at. Um, the children that we have currently in take care at the center. And I might add that there is no mandatory requirement for law enforcement to report their, you know, their missing child cases. So while we don't have all of the missing child cases, we do have a large portion of them. So we're comparing based on the intakes that we have here at the center. We're also looking at um, if, if um, a particular state has another website up on their end, we're going to look at those state websites as well to see if um, the child may perhaps uh, match one of their missing children. Okay, so you have to you have to be thorough and cross reference different databases. To Absolutely, adequate job. And I I don't I know that our listeners probably don't realize that there also is no requirement for um, agencies to enter unsolved murders into the FBI BICAP database system system so that you you can't compare say there was an active serial killer. All agencies don't have to put in their cases, although many right. do. But right. um, a lot of what we do in law enforcement, um, and a lot that analysts depends upon, is, is reporting. And so if agencies don't submit material to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that limits their ability to help you, the citizen. So, um, you know, the, and the analyst, you know, as many of our listeners, the analysts or students studying to be possibly be analysts. Um, we do have a little bit of echoing, so we might want to go down to two phones or something. We could fig you guys can figure it out on your end. Um, is there something else you wanted to discuss um, about your case? The case, oh, the case analysis unit? Um, I would just add that once uh, the cases that we do have intake here at the center, our analysts um, work daily on those particular cases, helping uh, the case managers who are assigned and law enforcement who are investigating those cases. We have um, a lot of wonderful resources that we use. Most of it's public information that, um, that, that the general public can get, but we're, our, our analysts have become very savvy on the Internet and with some of these public resources. And um, so as the case progresses, our analysts support those with um, full comprehensive reports um, to try and help locate and recover children and locate abductors. What kind of, I mean, so you're talking about what is known as open source information that people can either get for free by looking on the Internet or if they subscribe to some kind of service, you know, say if they could do yeah. checks or 
things. Um, so what kinds of things do you, what kinds of open source information do you use? I mean, um, this is Kristen. Actually, um, a, a, a variety of different things. I think um, one of the the challenges that we face here is that we're not a law enforcement agency, so um, we have to use uh, information sources that you know aren't necessarily law enforcement sensitive information or um, some of the um, the internal information that law enforcement might have on these kinds of cases. So um, we do have um, we are a private nonprofit uh, agency, however. Um, we partner with a number of different um, members of, of the private sector. So um, we do have a number of corporate partners who work with us on different types of data. There's, you know, it's, it's all public data, um, but using different types of databases, but also just using the Internet. And I think that uh, folks that are um, in maybe in the law enforcement realm, um, sometimes uh, the answers are found in the most obvious places. And the analysts have become experts at um, basically mining public information through the Internet. There's a lot of information that offenders will put out about themselves in various places um, and just some general information that will help us be able to locate people. Um, we're such an online world now that um, there are so many things in terms of people's um, travel and whereabouts and community involvement and um, associations that um, we have a sort of a library of links in different places that um, the analysts share with each other that continues to grow on a daily basis. But of course, um, we also we do have NCIC access here um, through the Adam Walsh Act of 2006. Um, we have access to criminal history searches and information, um, as well as other um, public database companies. So, could you perhaps just give an example of how, say, you do have a case how? You might use the internet, you know, just because I know a lot of the analysts I know, and myself included, because I had so much internal data, you know, things to analyze, crime data, call data, arrest data. I didn't have often have time actually to go on the internet to to use the internet as a, as much as I could have, although I did sometimes. But many analysts who are working with law enforcement data don't necessarily think that they could understand how that how that works, you know, because it's not like, say, in the military, you look at all different sorts of information, and you have people dedicated to open source information. But say you were looking for someone and you wanted to, would you be looking at, like, MySpace, Facebook? Would you be looking at some Flickr, if they have photos posted places? Uh, I mean, I just want to get a, just a tiny idea. Although I do know, actually, we do live in this transparent world where the criminals can do the same thing on us, so we have to be aware of those things. You know, it's, it's a changing world where people can access a, a great wealth of information on other people without much effort. Yeah, of course. And without giving away all of our secrets, um, I want you to. I don't want. <laughs> certainly, um, social networking has um, opened up a huge area for us, and um, particularly with young people online, um, you know, it's it's just pretty natural to be online anymore. And um, in the workplace, people are online and um, using networking sites um, in various ways. Um, if if people have been in a news story or media story, sometimes we can find images that way as well as information. Um, and then, um, if they've been involved in particularly type, you know, particular types of athletic events where they may post um, information about the event online, um, you know, if we have somebody that's in a particular type of sport, we might be able to figure out um, in terms of a timeline of their whereabouts, you know, places that they may have been based on events that are out there. 
Um, so I don't want to go too much into it, but no, but um, you are very, yeah. it is being very creative. And if anyone who has, you know, tried to find out something about someone, let's say they were doing online dating or something, and they tried to look up things, you could find a lot. You know, it is really possible to find out about, say, even an old friend. So I knew my old friend was in the Coast Guard, but I could find out a lot about her just by doing some online searching. So it is. Um, so you use the tools available to you, and you, you maximize them. It sounds like that's really great. Um, so did you have anything more to add to that part? So do you do, with case support, do you do things like you do timelines and things like that? Um, Absolutely. Analytical products? What kinds of products do you create? Well, we do a number of different, um, we we create a number of different products. We do some mapping. Um, We're also working with NCIC Offline. Um, NCIC Offline is something that I think, especially in the law enforcement community, it's a very underutilized tool. And we use it almost in almost all of our searches. And what that does for us, if say for instance we're we're interested in a particular abductor or a particular offender, it, it, submitting that NCIC offline will give us a lot of information about who's you know what law enforcement agencies are interested in that person, and it could potentially give us some travel information as well. Um, so those can help us, especially if we're trying to um, put a particular abductor or a particular offender in a given place at a given time. If we have a child that's gone missing that sort of thing. So we are doing some comparisons between, you know, known residences and known travel history to where a child has gone missing, and that can be quite helpful. So, for example, if um, you ran someone's, if someone's name was submitted to the system and you saw that um, Debbie Osborne was an investigator in Buffalo and she, she, want, she was working on this case, and you could find out from me that this, mm-hmm. that person was known to be in Buffalo in the spring of 2007 or something like that, right? So you could add that to your information. Exactly, and that's what we want to do. We want to give the law enforcement officers that we're helping, um, we want to serve as a pointer system, pointer system for them. We, we want to be able to give them something they can act on, reach out to other law enforcement agencies and try to collaborate. So we're definitely trying to give them every, even the smallest detail that we can so that they have something to go on. Okay, so... Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add to that case support element right now before we get on to the sex offender issue? (laughs) We can go on to the sex offender, and then if you have questions later, we can go back. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. I was going to add, as we're moving into um, the sex offender tracking team, um, one of the things that we do here also is collect data and um, try to make some sense of it um, in terms of numbers and so forth. We love numbers, um, <laughs> as any good analyst, I suppose. Um, and with sex offender tracking, and, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to Angela, we do collect numbers across the country for um, from the sex offender registries for registered sex offenders in each jurisdiction. We do a biannual survey. Um, we started doing a quarterly survey when we started the, the team back in 2006 trying to get an idea of what kind of baseline data we're talking about. Because if you're going to try to do a job um, where you're looking at uh, trying to go after um, a number of different fugitive sex offenders, um, we want to try to figure out how many exactly those were when you're looking at staffing and how to support law enforcement best and and how they can 
um, more strategically um, set personnel out in the field um, because we do work very closely with the U.S. Marshals, that um, we started talking to the registries and developing relationships with the registries and collecting data and information from them to the extent that we could. Um, so uh, we produce a, uh, a map, a sex offender map, um, twice a year, again, with that data where we update the data, and that is available to the public on missingkids.com. Um, looking under uh, sex offenders for anybody who's interested in those numbers. And I'll put that on my blog too, Analyst Corner. Um, and I'll put that on the link to the show too. Um, so can I just ask you, I'll interrupt though, in the sense that, okay, now you've been doing this for at least a few years, and do you see a change in what's available to you on the registries? Is there more better reporting um, of, of sex offenders? Because I, I just am asking that because the requirement um, that sex offenders are, you know, are listed. It, it seems to me it's easier to go, at least in some places, and find out a lot of detail about sex offenders online. And, and do you see that improving yourself, or is that just my perception? Um, I think it's gotten better. I think that um, what the Walsh Act endeavored to do was try to bring consistency across uh, jurisdictions to the way that they um, managed and monitored offenders um, and the way that they registered offenders and um, trying to bring some, some more standardization to uh, the criteria for which offenders were registered. However, um, like with anything, um, that's been a big challenge. We have 57 different registries across the United States when you include the territories. And, um, you know, everybody does it a little bit differently. Um, there are definitely a lot of things that are consistent, um, but there are a lot of things that aren't. And they can relate to just things like internal staffing. You know, some registries may have as few as 0.5 personnel dedicated to doing what they do, and some have as many as 50. Um, but the vast majority of registries have less than 10 people um, who are dedicated to that function. So, um, you know, it's hard, you know, when you've got massive amounts of data. And, of course, with the sex offender realm as well, where um, if they're missing, you don't know they're missing until somebody goes and knocks on the door and checks. And so it's not just a matter of collecting data at one end. It's a matter of um, basically boots on the ground out there checking and monitoring those offenders to make sure they are where they're supposed to be. And if they're not, um, then being able to, to do something with that information. It's really not enough to just say he's missing, but what, where do we take this from here? So that's what we tried to do in, in creating the sex offender tracking team was provide search and analytical support kind of as an information hub across the country that for all of those agencies that don't have teams of analysts, which most of them don't, um, to be able to have a staff here who would dedicate the time to help them search for uh, folks that had had fallen off the radar, so to speak. So I guess the you know it's not an easy answer to your question. It's it has gotten a little bit better, um, but it's it's still a major challenge. So I, and, I think and you mentioned the Walsh Act, and I we didn't really um, explain how the center got started. I believe it had something to do with Adam Walsh. And yes, actually, um, the center started back in 1984. And uh, John Walsh, of course, after the um, unfortunate abduction and murder of his son Adam, um, he and his wife became real advocates for children and started getting involved um, here in D.C. and um, really trying to 
make improvements to the system in terms of a child going missing. Some observations that they had made back then is that if your car is stolen, it will get entered into NCIC, but if your child goes missing, that was not something that, as a, a matter of course, was happening. So um, for property crimes, um, items and pieces of property could get entered, but for children, that was not so much the case, and that they had really done a lot on their own uh, during Adam's uh, disappearance. He was gone for two weeks before they found his remains, and so um, they were uh, really, really uh, very involved in their own case, and then from there uh, they wanted to do everything they could to make sure that the system improved, and there have been vast improvements since that time. So the center started in 1984, and we've really grown from you know less than 20 people back then to uh, about 350 people now in terms of staff, and we have very small branches in seven different states. Um, most of those branches, as I said, very small, uh, maybe just a case manager and a case manager assistant, um, but we also do law enforcement training around the country. That's a huge focus of ours to try to educate law enforcement, prosecutors, um, child protective services, and personnel who are working the front lines and trying to um, keep kids safe and also to work with families and schools. Um, obviously, the more prevention we can do, the better. Uh, it's not just enough to try to find children after they go missing. We try to be much more proactive. But um, I think most folks who are listening know that um, prevention it can be very challenging, and um, it's a it, it's a cost issue too. Um, although um, those who have worked in this area before, in terms of prevention, know that there's a, a cost that you incur up front that seems like a big one, but in the end um, it's cost far less um, to prevent these crimes from happening. But sometimes it's hard to justify the expense if you're talking to legislators who appropriate money if you can't show a result. Um, it's hard to show what didn't happen as a result of your um, your work. So um, prevention is and getting funding for prevention is always a struggle. But um, we try to use the data that we have um, to drive our prevention strategies. Um, it's a lot it's a lot better, easier argument to make if you have the numbers to back it up. So um, the Walsh Act actually didn't pass until 2006, and that was something that John Walsh and his wife, Revae, had worked on for many, many years. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the legislation that bore Adam's name was something that um, they felt would really be um, effective, that um, that was going to be worth it. And um, unfortunately, there are so many pieces of legislation that bear the names of, of children who have um, suffered in, in a, a severe tragedy and who have died at the hands of their uh, perpetrators. And we'd like to stop that um, from happening. But um, in this sense, John Walsh really wanted to go after um, offenders. And there's a lot of different components to the Walsh Act, but um, the sex offender registries and sex offender management and apprehension is a huge piece of the Walsh Act. And that's how we started our partnership with the, the U.S. Marshals was um, as a result of the Walsh Act. And um, it is, I mean, I'm a mother and a grandmother, so it is sort of, it does seem unfortunate that it takes parent av advocates to really change society in that manner. Um, just for some of our listeners, some are not in law enforcement, and they hear NCIC, we're just keep on saying that, and it, they should know that it's a computerized index of criminal justice information, such as criminal record history information, fugitives, stolen property, as Kristen said, and missing persons. Um, and it's run by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And, and so it's really a, a generic tool across the country that does bring this information together, at least in at least a minimal form, if, if it's submitted to NCIC. 
Um, so did we want, um, would Angela like to come on and talk more then about the, the sex offender issues? Sure. Um, okay. What I can do is just kind of give you a, a brief overview of the sex offender tracking team. As Kristen mentioned, we do have six full-time analysts, um, and I think it's important that we say, you know, when we say full-time, it's full-time here, but it's also what they're doing as far as analyzing the information coming in is full-time as well, and that the job that they're doing is very specific, and it's it's information that, um, you know, law enforcement has access to, but simply, as Kristen mentioned, doesn't really have the time. You know, they may be juggling lots of different types of caseloads. They may be assigned to be tracking um, noncompliant sex offenders, meaning offenders who are not where they are supposed to be. They may have provided a, a registered address and then are lo no longer at that location. And so a lot of officers, you know, find themselves trying to track these offenders and also handle, um, you know, other types of cases as well, especially if you're dealing with a small law enforcement agency. So what we do is we deal with requests from law enforcement agencies from local all the way up to the federal level who are simply contacting us and saying, you know, we're looking for this offender who is no longer where they said they were. Um, we deal with requests of offenders who may have been missing for years and years, some maybe not as long. And then we're accessing, uh, you know, similar information that Carmen had talked about as far as for the missing child cases, you know, looking at public information, you know, and just whatever um, things we can access online as well. We talked about social networking sites. Um, and, I mean, Google is a beautiful thing, you know, especially if you have an offender who has a unique type of name. There's You never know what you're going to come across um, online that might be that missing piece of the puzzle that's going to kind of bring it all together for you. And so we're also running um, – information that we are provided by law enforcement regarding the offender, we're also running that against the data that we have here as far as the missing child cases, uh, attempted abduction cases, and then also the cases that have been intaked by the Exploited Child Division. And so those are cases involving online exploitation as well as, um, you know, child prostitution, uh, child molestation, child sex tourism. Any type of um, exploitation against a child, sexual exploitation, we're accessing that information as well to see if we can link these offenders, you know, either by name or uh, maybe a, a screen name or an online presence, um, and see if we can pull that information together and provide that back to law enforcement. Um, basically, in a, a nice, neat package, um, hopefully with the, you know, answer to the location for where that offender might be. Um, that isn't always the case. It depends on what we're able to find. Um, but it's it's something, a product that we've, you know, kind of honed over time to provide as much information as possible. And then we can always assist law enforcement down the road as well if they are you know, have still not had any luck locating that offender, they may contact us again and say, you know, it's been it's been six months. Can you see see what you can dig up now as far as a possible location for this offender? So that's kind of it in a nutshell. How, how long does it generally, I know it would vary, myself, because I've been an analyst, but how long would it take for you to um, find an offender in a, you know, in a simple case and how long in a bit more difficult case? Well, I mean, generally what we say, I mean, it, you know, the ones where sometimes we get cases where law enforcement says, you know, we can't find anything on this guy, and, you know, we're able to find that little little um, nugget that's able to kind of pull it all together. And then other t cases, you know, they may be able to not find anything at all, and <laughs> we confirm that as well. Um, they're basically a ghost, and we're not able to, to get that, that magical missing piece. 
But depending on what you find, you know, if you end up finding a fair amount of information on an offender, you know, it can take, you know, a day, day and a half, two days, something like that, that you're working on a single report for an offender to pull all of that information together. Sometimes shorter than that, um, we do have situations where we've been able to actually locate offenders, uh, offenders as being incarcerated. Um, they may be in another state, uh, you know, and the agency that was looking for them, you know, just didn't have that information, and so we're able to wrap that one up pretty quickly. So those are, um, you know, the, sh- the shorter ones, obviously, but it just it really depends on the amount of information that we have and then what we're able to find. Sometimes you find a bit of information that leads to something else, which leads to something else, and so you're trying to run everything that you have in the most thorough ways that you can. Um, so, you know, it can take, it can take a couple days, um, but we try to be as exhaustive as possible and be as creative as possible, too, and you know, that said, every time somebody thinks of a new way to, to look up something or they find a new resource, we always send that out, you know, try to send it out not just to um, the sex offender tracking team but share it with the whole division because, you know, we're all different types of analysts who are looking at uh, different types of information, so it might be helpful to the whole group as well. Right. And so how many requests do you <clears throat> do you get for looking for sex offenders? In general, do you, I mean, you must have some stats because you are analysts. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Um, we do have, you know, all kinds of weekly and monthly and all types of reports. Um, it really, I must say, it really does ebb and flow as far as um, the workflow coming in. Um, as far as a, a total number of reports, we're um, getting up to about uh, 1,500 reports that we've received um, since our inception, um, so and as far as information that we're pro- providing specifically back to law enfor- enforcement, because we do deal a little bit, bit little bit with um, questions from the public as well that come come in sometimes. Um, but we, you know, it's close to 1,400 um, analytical packages that we've provided back to law enforcement. So, and that's since um, the end of uh, 2006. So, um, you know, and it's it's a unique kind of place to be because. We're able to link law, local law enforcement with, um, you know, registries in other states and provide them with possible contact for law enforcement agencies in other states as well to try to, you know, further their case and kind of get some more information on the offender that they're looking for. And you work as an analyst in law enforcement, and so how do you compare that job to what you're doing now? You know, it's we were kind of talking about about that a little bit before we actually came on the show, and what we do here is is really so specialized and you know in a way with what i was doing um with the law enforcement agency that i worked with um you know it's specialized there as well as far as being on a station level but you're dealing with all different types of crimes um and different types of things um you know issues you, you know public safety um you know community policing that kind of stuff um and here it's so much more specific so you're really able to kind of hone your skills a little bit better and really try to take it to the next level as far as finding new ways to 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 locate offenders and to find that missing piece to the puzzle um, to be able to provide, you know, hopefully a, a positive answer for law enforcement and a location for that offender. And do you think the skills that you've honed there at the National um, Center for Missing and Exploited Children are things that if you went back to law enforcement would help you? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you know, it's it's funny what I learned um working directly with law enforcement were you know, I was able to be exposed to some different types of things that I wouldn't have been 
here, um, and that holds true vice versa as well, where what I, this kind of things that I'm able to do here and, and able to focus on, um, you know, in a different light would absolutely be useful um, if, if, you know, if tables were turned. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that's so important and one of the things that's so great about all the different, you know, listservs that people can sign up to and, and share information back and forth because everybody has different little niches that they're working in, um, things that are helpful where they are may be helpful, you know, across the country to somebody else as well. Um, and so I think that while it is very specialized here, it's definitely something that you can apply um, on a broader scale to be helpful in an analytical sense in lots of different areas. And so do you um how do how do law enforcement agencies access your the sex offender tracking system service? Um because I don't know when I was an analyst, I mean perhaps our sex offense unit who I did work with, but not like you said, I was not, I was a generalist, I was doing everything, so I didn't have a specialty of a crime. Right. Um and there were there's not enough staff for that. So how do how would an agency know that you can do you see parts of the country know come to you more, or certain agencies come and use your services more, and how do agencies learn about your services since we have so many law enforcement agencies around the country? I mean, it would be kind of awful if all of them suddenly found out about you and and, and there were you know ten thousand new requests. <laughs> that, that would be a little have bit scary. Yeah. So you don't want to, you know. I used to not want to promote myself too much at work because I right. knew that I had to do the work and and I couldn't do everything. So, mm-hmm. so how, do you see sort of a trend and 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 demand from different areas of the country or different types of agencies contact you more? Sure. Um, I mean, as far as any sort of um, trend, we have been presenting at different um, locations, you know, across the country. We've either been, you know, asked to attend various conferences where we'll provide information about the case analysis division, including the sex center tracking team. And so you'll see sort of an ebb and flow as things kind of start to trickle in every time we present somewhere around the country or um, if we are presenting at a training in-house as well. Um, And so we'll provide the... um, uh, email address basically is how it's one of the easiest ways to submit the information to us, and we now have a request form that has actually been posted on LEA, which is Law Enforcement Online, um, that law enforcement can access, and it's a form that they can fill out and submit to us. And so we're getting our information out there. You know, it's kind of word of mouth. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll get a request from someone and say, you know, I work with someone who attended a training last week, you know, or attended a conference, and um, where we learned about this this resource, and I, I kind of wanted to find out some more information about it since I'm actually working specifically with um, sex offenders. And so we'll provide them with general information, and then it kind of goes from there. And so we'll see it kind of different different areas. You know, we had a training recently in Arizona, and so we've had several requests coming in from that area as well, um, not just for sex offender tracking, but also on missing child cases as well. So it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and like you say, I mean, we want to get – our name out there as much as possible because we want to be able to provide the service to law enforcement and for them to know about the center, you know, as a whole and all the different services that it provides, not just sex offender tracking, but all the different options that are available. Um, but at the same time, with your, when you're dealing with, you know, smaller groups like we have in the case analysis division, um, you know, it's it's one of those, it's a catch-22 sometimes where you obviously want to get the information out there and we want to be able to do the best we can and, and um you know, provide the services, um, you know, in a, in a definitely in a timely manner. But it's been a lot of word of mouth. Um, and hopefully, and I do believe you will get a few more 
people listen, uh, I know this will be posted on the International Association of Criminals um, listserv, their discussion group. And, and you know, um, one thing that some of our listeners won't know because they don't work in, in law enforcement is, is that issue that you don't, you don't necessarily know when a sex offender is missing. As you said, um, we don't, the officers have the, not only are they supposed to be tracking the sex offenders, but they also are dealing with their own caseloads of perhaps they're working in a unit where they're dealing with child abuse, abuse issues and um, a serial rapist and all sorts of things going on, and they're not, they can't get to everybody's house and check them because it being preventative takes so much money. You know, you have to be, you know, no one's assigned to babysit all these people, so you don't always even know when a, a sex offender is missing, even though they're supposed to be registered and, st- and live at that address and stay away from schools and do all those things they're supposed to do. It's very hard. We don't ha- we have limited resources, just like you have limited resources. And um, what your ideal world would be is that you do have an increase in requests for your services, and you have enough time to slowly add staff so that eventually you can, you know, really give this service, um, provide the service to everyone who needs that in an ideal world. <laughs> exactly. So. If you can create that ideal world, that would be great for animals. Well, I'm working on it. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. You know, I do, I do believe it won't be my life, but really, um, just that preventative thing, though the preventative thing too, you know, like it is so much cheaper to prevent a crime, but how do you how do you prove that? It's so much cheaper to prevent a child from being abducted and all the follow-up investigation, especially when you look at some of the cases, how much money is spent. And you know, Of course, you can't prevent everything, but if it's a serial offender who's done this in different jurisdictions and, and continued and was not discovered because we didn't dedicate resources, it's really, really, um, it's really criminal itself to, to let that happen. So you need resources like yours to help prevent that in the future. Um, so um, I, w- I wanted to ask, I don't know if Kristen wants to, do you have anything else to add, Angela, to what your, what your department does? No, I think we really you know, covered it um, pretty well as far as what we're doing and, and things that we're looking to do um, you know, in the future. No, you don't get involved in, it's the exploitation area that gets involved in issues of child prostitution and things like that, right? I mean, you, well, the ex- the Exploited Child Division um, does handle those types of cases, but actually um, Carmen's unit actually deals with that as well with the child prostitution. Um, I'm going to pass the phone back to her so she and Kristen okay, will be Okay, that would be great. Yeah, I'd together. like to talk a little bit about, you know, that's a job, terrible Hi. crime. I'm back. Hi, Sorry, Carmen. Carmen had to um, uh, get off the phone while we um, handed it over, so... Um, just to kind of recap your question a little bit, asking about um, online exploitation and child prostitution. Um, since Carmen has a staff member who is dedicated to um, working with the child prostitution issue, we'll go ahead and tackle that first. Sure. Um, well, we're very excited because we just this past January we were um, able to hire a full-time analyst to work on child prostitution issues. Um, here at the center, especially in our missing child Division. We handle a number of different cases, endangered runaways, um, family abductions, non-family abductions. But what we find is our endangered runaways are really the largest portion of missing child cases that we have. And this is a very vulnerable group of missing children. Uh, a lot of them have run from 
um, foster homes, social services, or just bad homes in general. Um, I think law enforcement tends to think that um, runaways are more of a pain than they are of uh, they don't really tend to look at them as victims, but they're very um, vulnerable. And um, when it comes to prostitution, uh, the folks who are out there, uh, you know, preying on these children, they know that they're vulnerable. They know that they um, have not had good backgrounds. So it's very easy to lure these children into this, um, feed them, clothe them, give them a place to stay, and treat them wonderful. And then the next thing you know, they're involved in this. So it's a very big problem. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the children are being moved from one city to another. Um, so where the child might be in Atlanta tonight, which might be in Chicago the next weekend. Um, so what we're trying to do is work with the FBI and with um, local law enforcement on identifying children who are victims of child prostitution. We want to get them recovered, but we also want to look at the offenders um, to see if we if, to help them build cases against those folks who are doing that. Um, and are, there, are there organized crime rings doing this, would you say? Um, I'd say it's very organized. Um, the the initiative that's um, the initiative that we're working with is called the Innocence Lost Initiative. It's a joint um, initiative between the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the National Center, and it really it was set up to target enterprises, um, folks who are working in an organized fashion to move the children around. And I think what's interesting about this is a lot of folks. Um, who used to sell drugs are now selling children. It's more lucrative. Um, there's less risk involved. Um, they're not holding it in their pocket. Um, there's there's an out for them. You know, the child is the one doing it, um, so that it, it gives them an easy out. But uh, the penalties are getting stronger, which is very good. Um, there's been some very big cases in the last couple of years, and there have been life sentences passed down for trafficking children. So this this is what we really want to do. We want to target those folks. Well, that that seems really crucial. It's <clears throat> do you see an international aspect to that too? I mean, or is it mostly children from this country? Well, we're Each focusing right now on on domestic children. I think the I think when people think of um, trafficking, and, and they think of um, children moving internationally, they think of places like Thailand. But it's happening here in the United States, and we really want to focus on these children because they're the ones that people really aren't paying attention to. These are just those kids that are annoying. They keep running away. And so we're really trying to focus on that group, those group of children who kind of get overlooked most of the time. So we're focusing domestic at this point. Do you have a number of, I mean, any idea of how the depth of the problem or the extent of the problem? Um, numbers have been really hard for us. Uh, it's been very hard to gauge this, and um, I, I don't know that anybody has any solid numbers right now. And I think part of that is because, a, for instance, if a parent reports a child missing and the, and the child's been gone for a month and they come back, um, the child may say, I was with my boyfriend, but and the parent is thinking, okay, this is just some guy she's been going out with or, or um but in, in truth, this is, this is a pimp, and they don't know it. They, they don't know it when they see it, and so that's part of the problem. I think part of the other problem is that um, they don't necessarily want to acknowledge that that's where the child has been. Um, and, again, it's the tendency to look at the runaways as problem children as opposed to victims. Um, it, it just I think it's an underreported issue, and it's just been very difficult for us to get a number. It's something we would like to um, try and get in the future if we can. Well, and also you would the the victims, the children, would be more likely to come from dysfunctional families anyway. You know, like families that don't care are are barely 
surviving, so they're not going to be reporting this anyway. Or that you know you wouldn't have. Um, although, would you say that the that, um, that is the case, or could the child, the victim child, be from any sort of family? It, it can. They can come from any type of family. I mean, the, the like I said, a lot of the kids. Um, they're missing something in their life, so they're running away from something and running to something. Um, so, But we've seen children from middle-class families all the way down through um, the children who are involved in social services. So it really does um, go across the gamut. There's, uh, they're all vulnerable to this. If they're running and they're on the streets, then um, they're a very big target. So I don't know that the socioeconomic issues really are, are a big factor um, overall, that's really frightening. Actually, you know, yeah. it, it's something that you know, there needs to be more awareness of, and um, it's good that you have this resource. And it sounds like just the tip of an iceberg that hasn't really been addressed. Yeah, that sounds like. Well, that's excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to say about yeah. this issue? Um, anything else? That's a good point. Uh, well, I did also want to mention something else in our unit that we're focusing on on the missing side of the house, and that's our unidentified and deceased child cases. Um, we do work with law enforcement on those long-term missing child cases, and we have a forensic services unit here at the National Center um, who helps law enforcement with those types of cases. And our analysts do a lot of work in terms of, I'm going back to the NCIC offline um, resource again, uh, they do a lot to help try and um, determine if, if a child's been missing for a number of years and we want to look to see if they have been recovered deceased and no one really knows this, we'll use those un those offline search results to look for unidentified uh, remains. So um, those are things we do. We also help um, law enforcement if they're looking for family members of a child who's gone deceased and they need to get DNA samples. Um, maybe the parent has passed away or they're, they're not, they can't be found. So we're, we'll help uh, law enforcement look for those family members to try and get the DNA into CODIS. So that's another area that we're kind of uh, focusing on at this point. And do you have uh, how many how many cases of unidentified or deceased missing children would you have in a year? Um, in a year? Or um, whenever? Yeah, <laughs> that's, it's a hard number. Um, I'd have to actually it pull would change the probably. It but changes. it's not. It's, I mean, it, how many? I know you can't give, but I mean, is it a lot? Or you know, as someone who doesn't know much about this, except for of course you read, you know, with the media, with you know all the different cases with children missing and then found. Right. have been murdered um what you know is this a common request for you is are you working on a lot of cases well we do have quite a number of cases but again we don't have every case reported to the national center so it's just a it's just a snapshot of what what is going on nationwide but um if you think about the tens of thousands of um unidentified remains that are across the country and there are tens of thousands of them that there there is no answer no one knows who they are you know a large portion of those are going to be missing children and it's just it's up to us to try and help um, law enforcement identify those if we can well it sounds like such important work um and um that is there any other thing you would like to add to that before i talk to kristen for a little bit no, I'll go ahead and pass it over to Kristen. Thank you, though. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was going to add that um, we do have um, several federal law enforcement liaisons who work with us here at the National Center that are actually co-located in our building with us. 
so um, although, as I had said before, one of the challenges we face as a non-law enforcement agency is um, trying to do what needs to be done without crossing the line. Um, but there are a number of instances where, uh, because cases have federal jurisdiction or international jurisdiction, that it's helpful to have a, the ability to have a badge-to-badge -badge transfer of evidence or information. So uh, we have um, agents from FBI, ICE, um, uh, U.S. Postal Inspector, um, uh, U.S. Marshals, and who am I forgetting? Um, Secret Service here um, who can assist us in various types of areas depending on what type of case it is and, and what information is needed to be passed along. And the FBI also um, has several analysts who are located here who assist with um, exploited child division cases. So, you know, a lot of those Internet cases, it's difficult to determine jurisdiction. They become federal jurisdiction because they cross state lines or they may cross international borders as well. Um, so uh, it, to determine where the uh, perpetrator is who may be trading um, images of child pornography or where the victim may be, we, of course, first want to identify um, who that child is to remove them from the abusive situation um, and then be able to determine um, who, who is perpetrating the crime and try to address that, which may or may not be in the same home um, depending on the commerce side of it. You know, unfortunately, this is a very lucrative area, as Carmen talked about, with child prostitution. Child pornography has also, um, unfortunately, become very lucrative. And so we work with um, both the public and private sector on that, working with federal law enforcement, but also with a number of different um, major financial institutions. We've started a financial coalition here. Our feeling is that um, if we can stop the flow of money, um, then uh, we have a lot better chance of, of being able to stop the crimes um, because somebody's paying for everything that's being transmitted. And uh, if we can track the money, we can probably track the children and track the perpetrators. So um, we're able to kind of, although we're sort of a little bit in the background, um, we try to kind of be that intermediary to pull public and private resources together to be able to address these crimes because it's not, it's not that simple. Law enforcement can't do it alone. Um, and the private sector uh, has definitely stepped up in recognizing that they want to be able to be a part of the solution as well. Right. And um, as many, some of our listeners won't realize, there's a lot of, um, especially major investigations, going for the, where the money is is what matters. Like that Al Capone was arrested for tax evasion. <laughs> you know, they couldn't get him for his crime. So you you have um, a child prostitution ring. You don't have anyone complaining. You know, the child's not able to complain and because the child's a victim and, and um not, doesn't have the resources so who's going to who's going to bother unless you know you have investigators looking for ways to to uncover trails of other illegal activity and of course making the profit they're not reporting this profit and their tax returns <laughs> you know and not as it's not that they're going to even get arrested for tax evasion but there's going to be the case will you be able to prove the money flowing from person to person and certain evidence that's attached to the activities that are criminal and build the case so that eventually hopefully be prosecuted um, what you were mentioning then to the um, other area the, the looking this maybe you could talk a bit about we have a, a few more minutes left about cyber tips um, and, and you and also what the analysts other analysts are doing 
that aren't in your division? Sure. And um, the exploited child division, um, they focus uh, basically in two different areas. We have a cyber tip line here, which takes tips from um, from the public, from law enforcement. From you can basically go to our our website at missingkids.com, and um, for cases of um, online solicitations or um, inappropriate um, sexual-based content being sent to a minor, online enticement, uh, misleading domain names, um, and obviously uh, child pornography sites. If a member of the public or law enforcement or anyone comes across something like this online, they can report it to us on our cyber tip line. And because we do work with um, a majority of the, the primary Internet service providers, electronic service providers um, around the country, that um, we can work with them to get those sites uh, shut down or try to track down offenders, um, depending on what the scenario is, of course. Um, so that's one of the things we do is, is handle cyber tips that come up and follow through on those. And then the other uh, program that we have here, which is um, probably requires um, the most labor in terms of um, analytical work is the Child Victim Identification Program, or um, CVIP, where um, we're looking at, the analysts are looking at um, images of child pornography um, and trying to not so much look at the child, but to, to look in the background of the case to try to determine where that child might be so that we can, um, if we can, identify location um, or at least a jurisdiction so that um, we can try to remove that child from that environment if the abuse is still going on. And then the other thing is, uh, too, um, that in many of these, the child has already been identified. Um, the unfortunate thing about the trading of these types of images is that long after the perpetrator um, who, who may have originally abused the child and taken the photographs is caught and the child is removed from the situation, those images continue to be uh, traded around the world and so we may be looking at images that are part of a series where we know we've already identified that child or law enforcement has already identified that child so we know that the child is safe um, but the images continue to be passed along so um, you know that's that's a, a huge area um, obviously um, you know we're talking about hundreds of thousands of images that those analysts are looking at um, on a regular basis trying to determine who these children are. And um, the other thing is that um, in the Ashcroft versus free speech decision, the ruling was that um, prosecution bore the uh, responsibility of proving the child was a real child and not a virtual child. So mm -hmm. that means that um, every child in one of those images, in order for there to be a successful prosecution, that child has to be identified clearly as um, as a real child. So it, again, puts that burden back on the prosecution. So um, that's one of the reasons why um, we do what we do and why we have to do that is um, uh, that burden of, of proof for uh, prosecution in these types of cases. Well, it sounds like difficult but really important work. And I think my last question, we only have a few minutes left, is how does one get to be an analyst at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I know I have some students that will be listening to this podcast, and so um, and students in the future say, "Well, this would be a good place to work." Or this, I know, if I was an analyst coming to work for your agency, I would feel like my mission was important. It would be worth getting up and going to work. So, how do you get a job there? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we do have job postings online at missingkids.com. Um, so that's one way that someone could check to see if there was openings. 
um, for analyst positions if they were coming from the outside. We do hire a number of our folks internally, so we've had um, individuals who came here right out of college and got a job working um, at our in our call center, an entry level position. Um, we have folks with master's degrees working in our call center and um, even at our reception desk, um, or even as staff assistants, um, hoping to be able to. Um, move on through the organization and, and do different types of work here. So um, I'd say probably uh, at this point about half of uh, my team here in case analysis at some point worked somewhere else in, in the center and has moved here from there. Um, I would um, just want to say as kind of a caveat to anyone um, on the outside interested in working as an analyst here that um, there really are um, a couple of different tracks that you can take if you're going to go into missing children or looking at offender cases, as An Angela talked about, sex offender cases, um, versus uh, the child victim identification program where you're looking at child pornography. And um, they're very different. And, um, you know, looking at child pornographic images is, uh, is not fun work, and it can take a lot out of a person, and it takes a particular kind of person to be able to cope with looking at those kinds of images. They are really horrific, and um, there is an extensive interview and screening process for analysts coming in to work in CVIP, and that is the reason why. Obviously, we don't want people in there who um, really are, are going to be seriously troubled by what they're viewing. Um, we do have resources to be able to assist analysts in this type of work, um, but it is really difficult stuff. And uh, in speaking for myself, as a former law enforcement officer, I, I choose not to work in that area. Um, if if I absolutely had to, um, I would do that, but I, um, I it's very difficult. And um, we have some analysts here in our division who previously worked up there. And, um, I mean, it's it's really great work. It's very valuable work, and my hat's off to those analysts. Um, but I think that, um, you know, as just as a reality check, people need to understand coming in what they're getting into, and that's it is pretty serious. Yes, I would I would agree. Um, I will also I will be posting posting missingkids.com on my blog and on the show link, and I will also be working on an article for lawofficer.com based on your services. So I, I'll email you if I have other questions. I want to thank you, Kristen and Carmen and Angela, for coming on Analyst Corner. We're at the end of the show. I'd like to thank the listeners for joining us and ask them to stay tuned for more expert guests and best practices in crime and intelligence analysis and policing. Again, thank you. Um, your work is so wonderful, and I'm so glad you're doing it. Take care, ladies. Thank, thank you very much. much. Bye -bye. Okay, have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.